Hi, this is Amy Lombardi from TuneCore. I'm in the Entertainment Relations Department based in Austin, Texas. Thanks for joining me today for part two of my interview with producer and mixer Tim Palmer. Here we go. Yep, I got the opportunity to continue working with guitar bands because once I'd worked with Robert Plant, bands would give me the respect then that, you know, you know how to record guitars and things because we had Jimmy Page on the record, things like that. So, you know, I had the chance to record with Jimmy Page. So... I got a bit of credibility with with guitar players and things, so I uh, got to work with guitar bands. And um, and then Reeves Gabrels, who was David Bowie's guitar player, had talked to Billy Duffy, and Billy had said, oh, Tim's great with guitars. And I ended up getting a phone call from David Bowie, and that was the beginning of that journey. So uh, next thing I knew, I was in Switzerland with Reeves and David working on demos for what was, at that time, going to be David Bowie's next solo album. Um, there was never any um, discussion about it being Tin Machine at that point. Um, it was just it was just the next phase of his his career, and it was a big change, as you noticed. And so, did he eventually just decide it was big big enough change that he wanted to call it something different? Yeah, I think it was because of the way that nature of the way that the personalities in the band were that working they together, were collaborating. That yeah, and I think. You know, he just came up with. They came up with this idea. Let's call it Tin Machine. And and uh, and I, I, at the beginning, I must say, I was a little disappointed that I was originally producing a David Bowie record. <laughs> but but um, but no, it was great, and it was it was an amazing opportunity, and 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 really, um, you know, once again, kept having to capture those guys. I mean, you've got Hunt and Tony Sells from Iggy's band. And Hunts and uh, an Austinite and an ins- insane drummer, and uh, quite the personality, and um, not the sort of guy that takes direction too easily, mm-hmm. um, but in the nicest possible way. I mean, he's a, he's a legend, and Tony, a great bass player, and you know they're all in one room running through these songs, and they literally would say. It, this is the way it's going to be and they just hammer it out and I would be trying to get a sound of the board and if he didn't get it right first time that could often be the, the take that was on the record so you had to be quick and uh, but it was so fun I just want I, I had to just interject here and you were about 27 years old yeah 26 at this time. then I think yeah 26 and you have I, I just you're not coming it's different this next record that you mixed but these were icons already so like that must have just been incredibly intimidating to begin with and then it was it was but also like maybe not knowing everything worked in your favor because you were just full of well what happened it's interesting because when you meet wonder you know when you meet some of your uh, you know the people that you have been your icons to you and, and 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 your heroes um David Bowie was obviously one of mine, so I was very scared. <laughs> I was very nervous. I can't deny it. When I was on that plane going over there, I was really nervous about how it was going to go and whether I was going to f*** up. But when I worked with Robert Plant, because I was coming through the punk years, I was never interested in Led Zeppelin. And uh, I didn't discover the, the wonder of Led Zeppelin till later. But when I was working with Robert, I didn't have that feeling I was just like, oh, this is good. I know he's famous, this guy. And um, he would mention albums that we'd worked on. I think we talked about this before, but he would mention albums um, that, uh, you know, he would say, the drums on Misty Mountain Hop have got this thing. You know that song? And, and I you was, were like, uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure I know that one. I know Stairway to Heaven. And, uh, and uh, eventually he asked me and he said, do you, what? He eventually he actually asked me and said, what Led Zeppelin albums do you own? 
Oh. And I, I couldn't lie. I said, I haven't got any. <laughs> <laughs> so the next day he walked into the studio with a pile, uh, and you know how heavy they were, a big pile of albums, put them down on the console. He said, you should check my old band out, oh see if you God. like them. <laughs> and that's how, I got my, that's how I got my Led Zeppelin albums. <laughs> but, uh, but with the David Bowie situation, it, it, it was a whole different thing because I knew all the albums right. and I was very scared. And, uh, and, and, and a funny story about that, when we spoke on the phone, he, we agreed, OK, come to Switzerland, it's going to be great, we'll do some recording. And uh, he told me a date, and I just remembered that date. That was it. It was, it was you know, it was, um, what you call it, branded into my head, that date. I'm going, to, I'm going to Switzerland to work with David Bowie. So the tickets arrived, and I put them on the counter, and I didn't look at them. And the day before I was due to start, I was at home, and then I get a phone call from the studio in Switzerland saying, where are you? Oh my God. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, your flight, your flight came in this morning. You weren't on it. And I hadn't, in, in all the excitement of it, I hadn't even checked the ticket. And the ticket was for the, the day earlier. And I basically <laughs> had to call the studio and ask to speak to David Bowie and say, I'm so sorry. I I, uh, I didn't check my ticket. I missed the flight, and I thought, what a way to start that relationship off. <laughs> what was he, what was his mood like he when you fine. finally got there? <laughs> he was fine. He was so nice. He was so fine about it. He said, "Don't worry about it. We're just setting things up. See you tomorrow," and it was fine. But I thought, what a way to start a relationship off with somebody who's, you know, like that. <laughs> I, I think I I want to just stop and mention to the audience like these huge stars I, I don't really like the word stars but these uh, icons or just people who are just have been so successful because of the fantastic body of work David Bowie Robert Plant like the graciousness that, that they have is is something the talented to ones be, are usually to be noted well the talented don't, ones usually are you know, pretty cool yeah I mean yeah and it's important to be cool yeah yeah, I think so. Don't be uncool. Um, okay. Uh, all right. So then how did Pearl Jam come about the next year? Well, well, I think, it, yeah, I don't know. I can't remember the, chrono, the chronology. Of, the internet told me it was the next year. Yeah, it may well have been. <laughs> I'm joking. But uh, I had worked with um, a band called Mother Love Bone um, from Seattle. And uh, basically... Uh, we made this record in L.A. Uh, I mixed this record in L.A. and I'd never met them. It was one of the first times that I ever mixed a record without the artist there, which was quite strange, really. I spoke to them a couple of times on the telephone. You mixed I, it in L.A.? I, mix, I came to L.A. because okay. the A&R guy, a guy called Michael Goldstone, who signed Pearl Jam, and, um, he asked me to come and mix this record with him, and we mixed the record in LA and I was basically on my own and uh, as I said I spoke on the phone a couple of times and the record came out great we did a few extra mixes when I got back to London and then sadly um, the singer died um, so right. so when he died Andrew Wood died of course the whole thing basically came to an end right there and it was a, f a wonderful record actually um, it came out but uh, obviously there was not really much they could do from that point so the band carried on, a lot of them carried on and making music, and they reformed in this new lineup. And it was sent to me as a in a tape, um, and they were called Mookie Blaylock. What? And uh, Mookie Blaylock was, a, I think, a, a basketball player, right? Yeah. Huh. And um, I think he was number 10. Okay. 
So, is so, that why the cover looks like that? Yes, that's right. Because they love they love they basketball. basketball. Okay, and Mookie Blaylock was the original name of the band. So I heard these songs, and somebody said, Are "You interested in mixing that?" And I said, "Yeah, it sounds great. Love it." And no pressure because they were an unknown band. So they said, you know, can, you, can, can we do one song and see if we're all cool with it? And I said, absolutely. So we did our f- I did the first song called Once, and I mixed it at A&M in Hollywood. And uh, I was still in Hollywood at the time. And then I said to them, look, if I mix this record, I don't want to be in L.A. anymore. I've been here too long. I, I need to get back home to England. And uh, would it be okay if I mixed it in England? And they said, sure, because these were the days when budgets weren't so much of a problem. And, uh, of course, there was no, you know, there was no great pressure because this was a new band. So I went to a studio called Ridge Farm in Surrey, which was a residential, and all the band flew over from Seattle. And it was great. We had meals together, and we made this record, and it was it was an, a really fun and simple record to make because there wasn't any external pressure from labels with expectation. There was no expectation. And um, also, no, the Seattle scene really hadn't exploded at that point, so no one was expecting anything in that vein either. Um, right. I wasn't even aware of the grunge sort of concept. I just mixed the record to, to make it sound the best that I thought it could. Um, so we mixed a song a day, and, uh, and, and that was it, really. The rest is history. <laughs> it was so strange. So right. strange. But um, what's interesting about that record, I think, to me, is that because, we, because, because of all that stuff that I said and because I wasn't really aware of the Seattle scene and because the record didn't sound particularly dry and grungy, when radio changed literally overnight from hair metal and you got winds of change, and then suddenly you're into Nirvana. There had to be some sort of bridge between the two sounds, and, and Pearl Jam were the perfect bridge for people to cross over because in the band themselves, Mike wasn't really a grungy alternative guitar player. He was like a, he plays classic rock solos. The end of a live could be the end of Freebird in a way. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, it's a real rock solo, and he he recorded that in Ridge Farm and. And he just performed that in one take. We tried to do it in pieces, but he said, no, I've got to get this in one go. And he just, he, he nailed it. And it was great. And that's the solo at the end of a live. But, you know, as far as what happened later, you know, the records became dry and small. And, you know, it was cool. It was very raw. I mean, I, I, it was punky, you know, I liked it. But the record I made was, wasn't, I didn't think of it like that. And it was still big and it still had depth to it and it still had reverb. So the radio sort of embraced it because it was it was still comfortable to their listeners. Yeah. And this was not contrived, of course, because I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, I, all I did was just mix it the way that I mixed records around that period. And uh, I wasn't trying to make a new sound. I was just mixing it the way that I thought would be right. And because they'd recorded it live and there wasn't too much on there, there was a lot of opportunity as a mixer to put reverse reverbs into things like even flow you know mm-hmm. and there was space to do things and space for delays and space to kill the effects in the middle and make it bone dry and then go back to the big reverb for the outro you know crazy mixed stuff like that that you do and you know it was uh it was it was just a fun record to make how did your career change after that 1990 and well, there was and definitely a lot more... How did your life change? I mean... There was definitely a lot more opportunities to work coming from America because these bands meant more here. 
um, than they did there. Um, not that people didn't like it, but, you know, it was a bigger deal here. So my manager, Sandy Robertson, who's managed me my whole career, he had moved World's End Management to America, and he'd set up in L.A., and he was managing a lot of American producers. So he said to me, look, why don't you, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm getting work here, come to America. So I, I moved to America and started living in Studio City, just outside of Hollywood, and working in American studios, and it was great. Loved it. And just working like, just working like crazy. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was the, you know, after the grunge thing, the 90s, I was able to do a lot of bands like Sponge from Detroit and Stabbing Westward and still keep that alternative thing, which I love to do. Um, and, 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 you know, work with bands that I liked. And it was, it was a good time. What other bands, what other projects were you working on then? Um, well, of course, around that period, I, I forget, <laughs> I sort of lose track. But around that period, I worked with, I did some work for... Um, There's a lot. Yeah, I worked, I did a record with, I did some mixes on a record for Michael Hutchins after he died. And the funny thing about that was, there was one song, and this is typical manager way of thinking. My manager, Sandy, said... This song, you've got to mix this song. It's fantastic. And, and, and Bono guests on it and get it sounding great. And Bono will hear it and he'll be working with you too. And I was like, yeah, right. So <laughs> I mixed this song for Michael Hutchins and Bono was on it and, it. and it came out much better than they'd hoped. And he called me up and he said, I won't bother trying to do an Irish accent. I was going to, but I'll stop myself. <laughs> and he, he said, I love the way the songs come out. You've really saved it for me. Thank you so much. You'll be hearing from me again. And uh, then I mixed um, The Ground Beneath Her Feet from The Million Dollar Hotel for you 2 and, and then I worked on the album and did Stuck in a Moment and Elevation, which, which was on the album All That You Can't Leave Behind. Right. So that was, that was another game. one, and that was the record that was um, nominated for Album of the Year. Sadly, we didn't win No Brother Where Art Thou won, but that's how I got my Grammy nomination. And Beautiful Day won, of course, for um, Record yeah. of the Year. That's right. And, and so that was... That was my introduction to the Recording Academy. Okay. Because I hadn't been involved in that. Good at segues. You're better than. (laughs) I told you a rabbit on. Uh, (laughs) A rabbit being an English word that you you probably don't know. But you no, but you you have a point. Um, Okay, so and at that point you had your own studio called Sixty Two. No, not yet. Not yet. Okay, so you're still working around in different studios. And then what happened was, you know, I, I worked a lot with a band called Hours. Do you know Hours? I know that band. I love I know Hours. Th- I love Jimmy. I remember the bidding war. Oh, I, lo- I love, still hours. love those records. And, you know, those, those were the days you go into a studio and you work on the song until it's right. So the music industry was beginning to change at that point. And the money was starting to, you know, become an issue. And This is like late 90s, yeah, mid, some, mid-late 90s. Somebody came to me and they started to say, can you mix this song? We have a fund. And I was like, what, what, what do you mean by fund? They said, well, we need to get it done for $3,000 or whatever the number would have been. So I said, so what do you mean? They said, well, you get, you know, get the, you, you arrange the studio, you sort out and, and we'll give you the three grand and what's left is yours sort of thing. And I thought, well, okay. So I would have to call the studios up myself, which was something that we didn't do in the past. You'd say to a label, we need to work at this studio and they'd book it. But I'd book it myself and say, hey, do us a favor, give us a decent rate. So you became, started to become a bit of a wheeler dealer. 
you know, asking for favours for cheaper rates. And this is the beginning of how the industry changed. Yeah, exactly. This so I'm saying, okay, give us the studio for that price and I'll get this guy to come and play a bit of keyboards. He'll do this for that. And then we'll do one day here and then I'll keep the change. So great. But it became a conflict of interest because you'd work on a mix and you'd think, I'd, I'd love to spend another day on this because... I really haven't got the the outro the way I want it. But you think, well, I can't do that because if I do that, I'll make no money. So I better get it done. So to me, it was, okay, well, how are we going to get around this situation? There's always going to be a conflict. So the obvious answer was, as many had done before me, build your own room. And then if they have a budget to mix a song, you can spend as much time as you like on it because it's your studio and it doesn't cost anything. Well, of course, when I say it doesn't cost anything, you're paying your rent and the gear, but you know what I'm saying. And your it's labor. Like you can spend, if you want to get something right, no one's telling you you've run out of time because you can spend the next day on it, if so. And if you, if you only have a couple of mixes to do that week, maybe you want to spend two or three days on them. So it was the, the, the idea of owning my own space was born out of a necessity to be able to continue to be creative. But at the same time, it was one of the greatest things ever. Because, you know, not being able, not having to compromise and being able to spend the time that you want and being able to dictate your own hours and having was, the keys. was something I'd never, yeah, I'd never had that. I spent the first half of my life being held hostage by studio owners who'd say, you know, you have to be out, take your gear down if you want to take a day off. So you'd end up working at the weekends. I only ever took Sundays off for the first 25 years of my career because that's all the studio owners would allow you to take. Otherwise, they would charge you for the day. And right. I didn't want the bands to be charged for me to take a day off. That didn't seem right. But when you had your own studio, it was the first time you could say, you know what, I'm not feeling it. I'm going to go to the movies now or I'm going to go and spend some time with my kids yeah. and I'll continue this tomorrow and no one can tell you anymore because as long as you deliver a great product, no one really cares. Right. So it was, it was born out of, you know, all those sort of necessities and reasons and it, it, it's been wonderful. And plus, one other small thing I'll add is you used to work at different studios all the time. One week you're at Track Record, one week you're at Record Plant, one week you're at Larrabee and you're having to adjust your listening environment and make good decisions and that's tough. When you have your own room, once you spend a week in it and you've gone out to the car about 20 times and listened to it in every speaker in your house and you know that room, you don't even have to think about it. You dial it in and you know what it's going to sound like somewhere else. So it's actually another great side to having your own place, really. Yeah, it's like a litmus test. So what is your... We kind of talked about it early on that your your work style was kind of like MacGyver-ish, like whatever, do whatever you got to do to get the sound you want to to get you know you know who macgyver is you know what i'm yeah. referring to um you've been here long enough um do you do you want to talk about yours can you describe your work style and well my, yeah I, I can talk about that i mean i've always believed that you know as as producer and uh, there's a there's a quote that my friend reeves gabrels who plays in the cure now he's da he was david bowie's guitar player reeves said you know don't forget you're not the word, you're a, you're a highlighter pen. And as a producer, that's sort of right, because never forget that you're not the artist. You're, you're aiming to highlight and help them make a great piece of work. So a lot of producers, I think, tended to stamp their own sound onto other people's work 
and have their own methods. And that was never my way of doing it. Now, that's not saying that theirs is wrong. I mean, people like Phil Spector did that. And I mean, he's one of the greatest producers ever. He had a sound. And if you went to work with Phil, you can that's take it or leave it. Get, right. But I was never in that. I never I was never in that camp, really. I always for me, you find an artist that inspires you. And you look at what they do well and you try and help them achieve what they're trying to do. And that means many things. One of the things it means is that your job changes all the time. You could be working with a, 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 a sort of jazz artist and, and then it becomes all about performance and it becomes all about being minimal and getting it right at that moment and things like that. And then if you're working on a metal album... You're talking about other things like how the guitars are going to shred and how the bass end sounds and is the kick drum bright enough. So, you know, as a producer, what you actually bring to the table changes dramatically from project to project. Some projects you work on, the bands are amazing and they've got their pre-production down, they know their parts, they know their sounds, and you can actually do very little. You can sit back and smoke a fat cigar and let them do their thing. And that's the right thing to do because you don't need to always change things for the sake of it other projects you work on you can see there's a seed of an idea there but you've got to really get in there and dig in so it's right from the beginning it's helping them with the arrangement it's helping them write parts it's helping them learn how to sing properly you know to to use a microphone so Mm -hmm. the job definition changes so dramatically and on top of all that as the producer you know most artists have a lot of insecurity and you have to be strong for them and give them the, you know, give them the inspiration that they need to encourage them, to make them feel good and not threatening. You know, you don't want an artist in a studio where they don't feel, they feel like yeah, they're being judged and they feel that, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, there has to be a great environment. It has to be trust. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is a position of trust. I can remember a good example was when I worked with Ozzy in 2002. Ozzy uh, was, you know, set to make a record and the record company said, you know, we want you to do this record. And I met with Sharon and I I met with Ozzy and they said, okay, but the record company said he doesn't really want to make a record. And I said, why? And they said he he didn't really enjoy the last one. And uh, he'd had a quite a combative relationship, I think, in the past with a producer and he just didn't enjoy it. And I used to literally go drive over to his house and be listening to songs and come on, Oz, we can do this, mate. It's going to be fun. Let's get in there and let's have some fun. And I brought him into the control room and I got him to sing next to me, which he'd never done before at that point. And he said, are you sure this works? And I said, yeah, it's fine. Just stand here and sing and I'll sort it out. Don't you worry. And he was able to be right next to me so I could be encouraging and explain things face to face. And, you know, things like that are really very important. Uh, other artists you work with, that might be the worst thing you could do. They need to be in a corner yeah, with candles want to, want to see in anyone. darkness. <laughs> but, you, but as producer, that's, what, that's why you need to be a bit of a psychoanalyst and find all this stuff out. And that's why pre-production was always important, because you walk into a room with a bunch of musicians and you've got to figure out, well, this guy, if you say this to this guy and this, this, this could all fall to pieces very quickly. So it's the art of diplomacy. It's I, being it's a politician. So important uh, that you're talking about all of this. I mean, it really is. And it's, uh, I mean, I don't know, I'm not really a big believer in this, but being a Libra and balance and everything like that is, is, has been good for me, you know. And, uh, but yes, there's no doubt that, you know, many, many artists are quite insecure and they, you know, they turn my vocal down. I don't want to hear it too loud. And you, no, no, this is this is all about you. This is coming up. You right. know, people vocalists often want their vocals quiet and things like that. But um, 
But yeah, my theory is just, uh, as I said, to get to what you need to get to, however, however you need to do it. If you need to go to this type of studio, if you need to bring in other musicians and everyone's cool with it, then do that. If you need to just be on your own with the artist and, 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 and do it yourself, then do it that way. I mean, there's many, many ways that you can make it work. Do you have expectations for from the artists that you whose projects you work on? Yeah, like I, I do. Like they have expectations from you. What are, my expectations from them is that they be open minded enough to have the respect to try things. Um, that's one thing. I mean, I, I do believe that respect is earned. It doesn't come automatically. You read stories of people who mixers who. You know, an artist will say, do you think we could try this? And they'll point to their platinum discs and say, I think it's right the way it is. That's bullshit, you know. Uh, I, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, you have to earn the respect of your artist. And it, and then once you've got that, they, they should allow you to, if you're going to say, look, I think we could really improve this if we do this. I want them to say, OK, let's give it a go. Because especially nowadays with non-destructive recording, why not? Why not give it a go? Mm-hmm. There's nothing to lose. What do you mean by what's non-destructive recording? Well, in the it, old days, there's no tape, so that you're not wasting tape. You don't sure, to, well, not not so much that. But in the old days, if you it was a, a mammoth undertaking if you had a 24 track tape and yeah. you wanted to re, rethink a section and replay guitars Fra- okay. and do all that, you know, it, it, it would take a lot. But nowadays, you can you, you can make an arrangement back. change yeah. in seconds with Pro Tools. You can chop it around and say, "Hey, look, check this out." And if they have that open mind, it's going to make it fun for you. And it's like when I make you punch things that fix my mistakes <laughs> and also I, I guess my expectation is that they've done their homework and they're ready to record and that they you know are, have learnt their parts and they have written some great songs obviously we wouldn't go into a studio until that's done but uh, you know there's a they, they have to have their side of the deal done too do you ever have artists who want to come in and just write songs or produce or just work on songs while they're paying you to produce uh, yeah, it's happened, but it, I hate it. Yeah, it doesn't really work for me. It's, it wastes so it's much so money. It's so much money. There was one artist I worked with, which I won't name, but it got to the end. It was the beginning of a record, and I said, you need to get these lyrics sorted soon. And I gave him my studio, and I set him up with these demos and a microphone. I said, it's all yours. Take your time. Let's get the words going. I'll have them done. Don't worry, I'll have them done. And we get start, and then we had to start tracking. I said, how are the lyrics coming along? Oh, don't worry, I'll be fine. And we get all the way through. The record's basically done. And he still hasn't got his lyrics together. And we're sitting around, literally, in a studio that's costing $1,200 a day, trying to write lyrics, coming up with lines. And it, it was insane. And there was so much money wasted. That will never happen now because no one's got the budget to do it. But, right. but it was, I, I don't like it like that. Not unless you're working with such a great bunch of musicians that can make that stuff work quick. Then it's fun. Yeah, pre-production is so important and it saves yeah. so much money. It's um, often overlooked, absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you have any, I mean, it's, I just imagine it's like all of your experiences. Do you have any particular favorite experiences in the studio that stand out? Well, they're all they're all. I mean, uh, I'm sure the first. There's been so <laughs> so many. I mean, I just like, I wanted. I just I think uh, we mentioned it earlier. I I really liked the the times that that when we could go to residential studios because there was something very special about when you could literally everyone in the band and that includes yourself can lose lose the rest of your life and concentrate on nothing but the music. 
you don't have to worry about whether the washing's done or what we're going to get for dinner tonight. And, you know, it was sort of selfish, really, especially if you've got a family, because you have to leave them behind and not yeah. think about it. But it, for the music, it was great. It was a lot of, you know, fun times and camaraderie and, you know, really bonding over a record. And we, you know, things like Ridge Farm. Um, I made the Mission album there. We did Lamal's album there. I did the Pearl Jam album there. I did some Tin Machine there. Great times, great food, just a wonderful experience. And, and there was other places like Rockfield in Wales. I did the, the first Robert Plant album at Rockfield. And it was just so fun. And we did the Mighty Lemon Drops World Without End there. You can see the rooms. If you watch the Queen movie, they go to Rockfield because that's where they did that. And you can see the rooms that you stay in. And it's just fantastic. And these people have um, amazing staff working there to cook for you. And it's just uh, they, they, there were some really good times. What are those residential studios called in the U.S.? Are they called that? They called the same thing like like Bearsville and stuff like that. Yeah, there's one. There's one in called? Texas. Yeah, that uh, crazy. Uh, What's it called? That one again? I forget. Do they, Tornillo, Texas. Uh, do they call them something different here, like Resident Sonic, Ranch. Sonic, Sonic Ranch? Ranch. Yeah, okay. that's supposed to be great. It's great. I haven't been there, but it's supposed to be fabulous. Uh, do you have any advice for listeners looking to make their break in? as an engineer. I mean, I think I started as a receptionist in the music industry at A&M Records yeah. in New York. So I, I think it's the same thing as being a T-boy at a studio. It's yeah. like, cause sure. I did, I had to separate the and deliver faxes that came in. Like, so it was all of those basic, basic duties, but yeah. Um, I mean, my, I, I think apprentices are great. Yeah. I, it, it, it's hard to, to get that now. I mean, it does happen. I mean, I, it's, it's obviously the music industry has changed so much. The first half of my career was traditional recording with analog tape machines. The second half was all about Pro Tools and learning that. The music industry is a whole different beast to when I began. Um, so to succeed is a whole... There, I mean, there was a time when there was only a select few that could operate a studio, a control room with a big console and a patch bay and all the microphones. But now... Everyone can have a Pro Tools rig, and pretty much everyone can make a record of a, of a pretty decent standard if they want. So the competition is really high. Um, I, I, you know, it's obviously a tough business to crack, and I think that it's important to enter this industry purely because you love music so much you can't stop it. Um, you're not going to enter into this industry now because it's a great move to make money. Yeah, we're not, we're not. <laughs> Even, I mean, that really isn't that really isn't the driving force now. When when I first got my first job and I walked into Phil's studio, uh, office and he had all these platinum discs and platinum singles and he drove in in a Rolls Royce and he owned the studio, those days are gone. Record producers are not those guys anymore with the big cigar. So, you know, enter into it because... You, you love it and you can't live without it. Um, I would definitely say that it's worth your time learning Pro Tools or whatever the, the uh, DAW of your choice is. And um, if you can afford it, go to school and learn as much as you can. You know, And then you'll find like-minded souls who you can share ideas with and maybe even sometimes people pull together to buy equipment because you can maybe put a studio together a few of you and start off together and it's a great opportunity to to um to record local bands you know you have to do it for nothing but if that's what you have to do then and and you can cut your teeth it's better to learn on your and find out where you're going wrong on your friends and on local artists before you get your first decent break so definitely do that um 
There's a lot of Facebook groups you can join now. Uh, produce like a pro and, you know, you can just type in audio production and people are asking questions all the time and you'd be surprised at the calibre of the producers and mixers that are answering them. So there is help at hand. Uh, that's good. But there's definitely no, um, there's no magic pill and a little luck is, is very helpful to you. Um, as we discussed earlier, I'd say, you know, remember that the most important thing of the whole process is the song because the song defines your success. It defines everything. No one will listen to a sort of humdrum, dull, uninspired piece of uh, uh, music or a song that's recorded fantastically. No one could give a damn. But they will listen to a great song, even if it's recorded poorly. <laughs> so that's your, that's your key to it there, is to make sure that you find things that are worth listening to because then people are very forgiving. Uh, I mean, I don't like to put the, the craft down, but I always say that the best cure for a bad mix is a great song. And it is, because when you work, when you listen to some, you go through Spotify and you listen to some songs that you've loved, occasionally you come across one and you think, this sounds horrible. But guess what? I don't care. Yeah. I want to hear it like that. And if somebody covers it and records it properly, you don't want to hear that one either. You want to hear the horrible one because you love a song the way it's presented to you. The first time that you hear a song... You love it for all the raw edges as well. And that's how you fall in love with that song. So you have a lot of, you know, forgiving ears out there and uh, take advantage of that. And uh, the last thing I'd say is that more than when I started, more than ever is to be able to play an instrument, particularly a keyboard or a guitar, because when you get to work on music nowadays, often because of small budgets, they haven't had the time to craft it. So if you're able, and I know this from my own work, mixing now is, is finishing. It's not just mixing. Um, occasionally it is, if you're working on a project that's been really well thought out or with a great producer. Um, but a lot of the time, you're not only mixing it, but you're fixing as well. So you might think, okay, that guitar was pretty good in the middle, but I'm going to double it with another guitar with a tremolo on it, and it'll sound pretty cool for that middle section. And maybe I'll add a little string here, and I'll fix a bit of this here, and I'll add a tambourine here. So if you have skills that you can use like that at your, you know, at hand, it's going to be a big bonus to you as a mixer. Do the larger, do, do artists with higher profiles mind that um, you're dubbing in guitars i mean i know you've you've played guitar on a, yeah. on a few records mm -hmm. i think you mentioned tears for fears yeah D do you ever have any pushback on that from artists like they want occasionally to do, they not want so to much nowadays most people all they care about is that their song sounds the best it can be um occasionally you will but you've i always make it very clear when i send a mix out look i've, I've added a few sure. things there's a mute button. If you don't like it, it, I'll shut it right down. But as somebody who's trying to give you the best you've got, I'm going to show you all the things I've got. And if you don't like them, that's fine. But I think I owe it to them, um, if they're paying me, to give them what I think could improve their music as best I can. And if that means adding a guitar in the last chorus just to double something, most people are not going to have a problem with that. But there's always the mute button. I just really get a kick out of working with artists and trying to see them, the, the joy on their face when, when slowly it's beginning to take shape and we're all happy with it. It's, it. It is very special. And now you're also a part of the Recording Academy and I forget your exact title. It's Yeah, after the U2 thing, I 
at that time, if you were nominated for a Grammy, you automatically became a member of the Recording Academy. And, and like so many people, I sort of thought of the Academy as the Grammys and nothing more than an award show. What I wasn't aware of was all the other great things that the Academy do, like advocacy. Um, last year, we managed to get the Music Modernization Act through the Senate, which took a lot of trips down to the the, build, the uh, government buildings here in Austin to the Congress building and meeting up with lawmakers. And this went on throughout the whole country and people going in and explaining how things need to change. And we got there. Uh, so that's really important stuff for the next generation of people who are going to try and do what I do. Hopefully they'll be able to make some decent money at it. Eventually it's all going to be incremental, but we're getting there. The law, it's the first time ever in the history of America that the word record producer is mentioned in law. So right. they're entitled to um, a, a, a slither of the streaming. Um, so advocacy is important. Music cares uh, is so important to me. I mean, the way that the health system is constructed in America, there's a lot of people who are musicians who don't make very much money and they get into hardship with doctor's bills and things and music cares is able to step in. And they stepped in in Hurricane Harvey. They step in uh, shootings at the casino um, they step in with mental health care, with hospital bills. And, I mean, it is an incredible organisation. Yeah. And um, I'm proud to be part of that and to, as I am now, um, I represent Texas as one of the trustees. That's the word I was yeah. looking Yeah, and it's great rep- being a Brit representing Texans. A British Texan. It's just, I feel very proud of that. And um, I love the work that we do. And um, I love the opportunity to give back and help anyone that I can because I'm grateful for the life I've had through music. And I, if I can help somebody else, I will do that. And I've been able to do that. And the other thing is um, another organization in Austin, which I absolutely adore, is Black Fret. And I've been on the advisory board of Black Fret since day one. And their, their concept is simple, that local music is valuable and that we should invest in it in the same way that we invest in the opera and classical music. Symphony. You should be a patron of local music. And this was set up um, about two or three years ago. And um, we've given over a million dollars now to local music. I'm a uh, fellow through, advisory board member with you. That, there you go. Through through um, through grants yeah. and 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 you know fifteen thousand dollar grant and it's just it's very simple. People want to join. They want to watch music. They enjoy the music and the money s- that they give goes directly to the artists. Yeah. And there's no other city in America that's got anything like this. And I think uh, there's going to be some other cities that are following soon. That's yeah. What I've heard. I, I yeah. I don't want to. I don't know what's been announced or what, about any yeah. of where they're at. Yeah. So I forgot to ask you, why, what brought you to Texas from L.A.? Well, when I was in L.A. and the music industry, as I said, started to change and I had the studio in uh, North Hollywood and I was paying, you know, quite a high rent on it. I thought, well, why would I want to do that? I can sell up and move to somewhere else and build a studio in my house and not have to drive to work. And then it'll be even more freedom. And I looked at the opportunities of places to live that had a great music scene, great schools, uh, no earthquakes was one of the requests from the <laughs> wife. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, and we didn't want really freezing winters. So it boiled down basically to 
Nashville or Austin and we just and I'd been to Austin many times for South by yeah and I just always had a good feeling here and uh, I haven't regretted it one minute Austin has been very good to me and I love it here I love it's it a here great too. place I think you got here in 2009 right yeah so I was just I just came in just behind you um somebody told me I should ask you if you were a soccer fan yeah, yeah, I am. Okay. I support Arsenal. Okay. And uh, we didn't have... St- season started off badly, but it ended up pretty good. and Not too bad. But, uh, yeah, it's great now because you get most of the games here. And uh, I do enjoy watching a, a football game, as we call it, because you use your feet. Yeah. As opposed to American logical. football, where you use your hands. Um, but they... <laughs> is it just named gripe. after the kick? Is that what the, the American one is named after? I guess it must be. The kick that... Yeah, it's very rare, but but yeah, it is football here. What kind? Of, what projects are you working on now? Uh, all sorts of things, actually. It's very quite very... I mean, uh, one thing that I have tried to do... I just saw that you did the... the Jeff, Go- I'm sorry to interrupt you, but Jeff, Jeff Goldblum, Goldblum, yeah, record. that was great. Yeah, yeah, I loved that. That was fun. It was a live. They set up live at Capitol Studios in LA, and just played in front of an audience, and then sent the tapes to me in Austin, and I mixed it. But um, you, I've, I've I've always tried not to get. You know, a lot of producers will concentrate on they do metal or they're known to do jazz. Or I've tried as best I can in my career to not get stuck in one area because I think it would get boring. And also you can learn so much from each of those yeah, genres and bring it to the next one. Yeah, so you stop learning I've me. been really lucky that I've managed to pull that one off. Um, but uh, so I've just finished mixing. A, uh, I've been working with Candice Springs again, a jazz artist. And I've just finished a, a new record last week for Taria Turanen, who was in Nightwish, who's symphonic operatic metal. Big, big sessions, you know, very orchestral and rock. Yeah. And uh, and um, and then, as you said, I did Jeff Goldblum and I'm about to start a, a prog rock album. And so it's all sorts of things. I'm just happy to keep busy. Yeah. I'm really happy to keep busy. D- during your f- four decade career, know, which is actually enough. like it's not just like you've been working in the music industry for four decades. You've you're kind of like there's very f- there's a few select people who have been actually had successes in each decade. It's like, you know, like the Stones, Cher, like yeah. me, <laughs> Tim, Palmer, Tim Palmer. I'm like, I cannot thank you enough I, uh, for talking to us. I mean, this has been really magical for me too. Um, so well, thank you thank for having you me so much for talking to us. And I, I, I want to invite you now to maybe have another conversation. Maybe you and Johnny about songs. Like yeah. we were talking about, I was listening to you talk about like how the song is the most important thing. What's the most important thing in songs? I love talking with songs? Johnny. That's yeah. good. Johnny's yeah. the best. I interviewed Johnny last time. All right. Well, thank you, Tim Palmer. Thank you. I can't tell you how, how happy you've made me. Um, this is Amy Lombardi. You've been listening to the TuneCore Music Made Me podcast. Hope you've enjoyed our conversation. Uh, our producer spotlight with Tim Palmer. I'm going to post his CV uh, on this. That will also be attached to our SoundCloud link. So you can really check out all of the music he's worked on. And he has a Spotify playlist that he shared with, with us. Actually, he just shared it. Um, and I will make sure to include that as well, because I just, I really want everybody who's listening to see the, the amazing body of work that's this person has has shared with the world so thanks again tim and take care everybody bye-bye 
Thanks for listening to Music Made Me, the TuneCore podcast. The opinions expressed in this episode are those of the individuals talking and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of TuneCore. Check out TuneCore.com to help you distribute your music, register your original songs worldwide, and more. Connect with us on all social channels at TuneCore. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. 